If you would open your Bibles to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. And let all of us who have ears here today. We're in the final chapter of Hebrews. We've made it in chapter 13. It's the home stretch, if you will. Last week we discussed how significant it is indeed that we have received this unshakable kingdom. In chapter 12, Paul, uh, not Paul, (laughs) I don't believe Paul wrote Hebrews, but I throw that in there sometimes because Paul wrote so much of the New Testament, so... But the author of Hebrews has told us that we, we've not come to Sinai, that which may be touched, but we've come to Zion, the untouchable, heavenly Jerusalem, the kingdom of God even. It's unshakable. And so he has summoned us to live in a grateful way that leads to worship, the gratitude as the first response of the heart of the Christian leads to worship. And really, it was given to us in view of the end of all things. That in light of the fact that everything's going to be over at some point, that God himself is going to shake all the universe, and and, and we're all headed there very quickly, quicker than we might think. Even if it's going to be thousands of years more, we're headed there very quickly, and God will so radically shake the heavens and the earth, and everything that is shakable is going, to be pa- is going to pass away, be removed forever, and we will enter into this kingdom. We'll receive, as Peter says, a new heavens and a new earth. All that is old, all that is broken by sin will be removed. And only that which is covered by the blood of Jesus will remain. So let us be grateful. We've received this kingdom. We've received this hope. Let's be grateful. And out of that gratitude, let us offer up acceptable worship. And so on the heels of that, of that glorious vision of what God is doing, he says, let brotherly love continue. And I want to begin, really, by asking just a very basic question And that is, do we really understand this command? Let brotherly love continue. We already talked about verses 28 and 29 of chapter 12. Even though I read them as we began, we're really just going to focus on chapter 13, verse 1, as we get into the final chapter. And so I may balk at that and say, that's silly. Why would you spend a whole sermon on one verse? Well, if you've been here a while, you know that I'm off to do this. Um, And we spent a whole sermon one Sunday on one word. Uh, I think we've done that a few times. So it's not out of bounds to focus on this. But in some sense, there's a clarity of this command that would also make it somewhat silly to spend such a long time talking about. Let a brotherly love continue. This isn't difficult like propitiation. 
or God's purposes in the universe. It was fitting for God to do this. Those, those are complex, high-order theological ideas. Let brotherly love continue. That's simple. It's easy. We understand it, right? On the one hand, it is clear. But on the other hand, we can think that we clearly understand the simple things. But all that we're doing is interrupting the author and talking past him. We're filling in what we want to hear or what we've been told he means. Has that ever gone well for any of you in your marriages or in your close relationships to try and finish your spouse's sentences? Kind of filling in what you think they're saying, interrupting and completing it and already beginning to answer before they complete their thought. Does that go well? It doesn't. And it's as Solomon says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And we shouldn't do this with people, obviously. I think that kills relationships like cancer. But much less should we do that with the Word of God. And as we read, as we reflect on the Word of God, let brotherly love continue. That's one of those that we can just pass quickly over. Not listen. We give an answer because you have to give an answer to the Word of God. We're responding like, I obey this, I don't obey this, I need to grow in this area, I need to change in this area. And we can just pass over and not hear. And so in some sense, I struggle how to approach a concept such as brotherly love. I could do something like this. This could be the flow of the sermon. Look at how great brotherly love is and how awesome it is. Go do it. Right? That could be one way. Or it could be to say something like this. Look at how great we have it in the family of God, that Jesus, through the Spirit, has enabled us to love one another. Isn't that so great? Hooray! But the flavor of this is, it must continue. And if it's not there in the first place, it must begin now. There's an urgency attached to this summons, this command for brotherly love. So, even though it's very simple, let brotherly love continue. Let's make sure we really hear it before we gallivant through the rest of the book and miss its central significance. So, before we define our terms, before we get into explaining or understanding what it is these words actually mean, let's, let's dig in to where it occurs. There's three big things I want to say about this that have nothing to do really with the words themselves, but just have to do with where it shows up, where, where it is placed in the Bible. That matters. It's very significant in your interpretation of your Bible, where things are said. So let's go back to chapter 10, okay? I want you to turn there. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. These verses set the agenda for the rest of the book. I'll begin reading. I'll read it quickly, and I'll get down to the place that this, is, this connects to our text this morning. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's called the Christian triad, faith, hope, and love. And the author underscores it and ties it into his entire theological description of the ministry of Jesus as our great high priest and the role of the new covenant in enabling us to live a life of faith, hope, and love. And so chapter 11 is his unfolding of this theme of faith. Chapter 12 is his unfolding of this theme of hope. And chapter 13 begins his unfolding of this theme of love. So, while this description that we just finished, this description of Sinai versus Zion, is the finale of the book, it, it's really a vivid description of our hope of those three things. It's, it's focusing in on the middle, our hope. It doesn't happen in isolation. You can't have your hope in God without faith in Him. And hope moves us to a life of love. They all work together. Here's how they work together. Faith looks to the person of God and entrusts oneself to Him. That's what faith does. Faith looks upon God and upon His Son, Jesus, and entrusts oneself to Him. Hope looks to the promises of God and perseveres in light of them. Love looks to the people of God and lives today in light of the person and promises of God. They all work together. So therefore, brotherly love is the very first answer to the question, what is acceptable worship really like? You see how it functions. Faith, chapter 11, Hope, chapter 12, and that hope leads us to desire to live a life of acceptable worship. Well, author of Hebrews, what is a life of acceptable worship? Let brotherly love continue. Last week, it was there in the text, but I barely mentioned it. It was in the, in the statement, let us offer up acceptable worship. Not a lot of time was spent there because my plan was to spend this entire sermon on this idea of brotherly love, that we together in our love for one another offer up acceptable worship, and there is no other way. And this is why chapter divisions and verse numbers are sometimes unhelpful, right? Because you can think that the idea that the author meant the idea to end there at the end of chapter 12, and then when we start Chapter 13, it's an entirely new line of reasoning. But just let let me read it again without any interruption. Beginning at the end of chapter 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. It's an immediate implication. It is the number one answer to the question. What is a life of acceptable worship to God? 
It also helps us understand what are we even trying to do on a Sunday morning? What, what would you answer if, if a non-believing friend asked you, why do you go to church on Sunday morning? What are you trying to do? You might say something like, well, to worship God. Sure, hear His Word, learn about Him. You can do all of those alone at home with your Bible. Is the meeting in person outdated? We, we have Zoom now, and all of us are unfortunately experts to some degree on how to do virtual stuff because of what's happened in the last 12 months. And some churches have made the decision to just be done with the in-person gathering indefinitely. So why go to church? And let's just be honest, it's work. It's hard sometimes. If what we're after, if what we're seeking is a feeling or peace or a specific set of an emotional array, like I want to feel these things or to have these sublime thoughts, then it just gets harder and harder and harder. And so many things that happen make this difficult. Why do it? Why go through all of that if we can just worship at home? Because, brothers and sisters, to put it simply, the worship that God most desires is for us, His adopted children, to love one another as we offer up praise to our God. To say it another way, to worship God by selflessly loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is the only way to offer up acceptable worship. Here's a simple test for you to kind of think through these things. In your own mind, which do you think is more honoring to God? Your favorite worship song or hymn or favorite sacred music ever written, perfectly executed and everyone singing perfectly and no wrong notes? Or speaking five simple words of encouragement to your brother or sister who needs it? Which one is more honoring to God? Your answer to that question determines a lot about what you seek, what it means to belong to the family of God. To ask it another way, which is more honoring to God? You feeling the presence of God and getting your spiritual needs met? Or making sure that everyone knows what you know? Or associating with the lowly, spending time with the lonely, and silently listening to the one feeling lousy? Which one's more honoring to God? Or one more way to ask it. Which one is more honoring to God? Hearing the perfect sermon? Imagine the perfect sermon. Okay, I'll never preach it. And whatever that is for you, maybe it's 15 minutes long. I don't know. (laughs) But which is more honoring to God? Hearing the perfect sermon, resurrecting your favorite pastor from ages past, or, or bringing your favorite living pastor here to preach the very best sermon ever preached. Or... So is that more honoring to God or being long-suffering and going to battle in prayer for your brothers and sisters, 
for all the things that we simply can't do. Which is more honoring to God? Which way did Jesus worship God? Have we learned nothing from the incarnation that we would think that monks and scholars and mystics and church growth strategists and the traditions of our favorite teachers tell us more about what is acceptable worship than the life of our Messiah? Number three, this is the third thing that we can know just from where this occurs in the text. More generally, brotherly love is at the very center of what it means to live a holy life. So we've been talking about worship and how we as the body of Christ offer up worship to God. But it's also what it means to live a holy life. And this is so very key and it is very neglected. Some authors hold that this statement, let brotherly love continue, is, is like a superscript or a title over the rest of chapter 13. That holiness is on the far side of brotherly love. It's not a part of your holy life. It is the burning center. Do you think of holiness that way? We don't have time to cover all the ways that this shows up, but it happens in almost every letter in the New Testament. The New Testament author, whoever they are, just goes on and on and on about theology. And then when they make the transition to application, it is very frequent that the first thing they underscore is brotherly love. Tons of examples. And if you come back tonight, that's one of the things hopefully that we will get to discuss. Is letting brotherly love continue a title that you would hang over your life? The increase of love between brothers and sisters in Christ. Would would that work as an honest title over your life? If you were to ask an objective bystander to your life, they don't exist, or, you know, maybe they do, God Himself. If you asked an objective bystander to to give a title over your life, what would they say? Living a good life? Being right in every discussion? Giving your kids the life that you've always wanted? Being a good citizen? Contributing to society? Doing great things for God, even? Or maybe even something very good, like, well... Enjoying God, uh, glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. But if what we mean by that is not by loving His people, my brothers and sisters in Christ, then our religion is frankly worthless. You cannot love Christ and not love His body. To say it another way, holiness in your life is a result of brotherly affection, brotherly love. And we can't get there. You can't get there. You can't get to holiness another way. Love is the way. This is how Jesus speaks, isn't it? When the judgment happens, He begins to go through what these people did for the least of these as the basis on which He judges them. 
you didn't give me any drink. You didn't clothe me. You didn't visit me in prison. And they will begin to say, when, when did we see you sick and not help you? When did we see you hungry and not feed you? If you were there, Jesus, we surely would have done something for you. But I will turn and say to them, insofar as you did not do it for the least of these, you did not do it to me. And that takes so much faith to see your world that way, that Jesus takes it personally. (laughs) So the brother or sister that you may not enjoy spending much time with at all, who's in front of you, who needs help, is, in terms of the justice of judgment day, on the same level as Jesus. That takes faith. So let's look at these words. Brotherly love. It's one word. In Greek, it's Philadelphia, which is ironic because that city is not nice. And I can say that as a Dallas Cowboys fan. You can lose your life going to games there. You know that if you wear your team's colors. Okay? Philadelphia, brotherly love, love among brothers. It's very simple. And it means basically what it says, familial love. It is a love that exists between family members. And family ties in the first century were something that it's hard for us to relate to. Who your family was, in a large measure, determined who you were. Your identity was tied to your family. Your good was tied to the success of your family. And so when we hear this word, brotherly love, it it carries a sense of commitment, of connection, of identity. And what's outstanding and stunning about this command to us and to non-believers at the same time, is that it's being applied to people who are not blood relatives. For most people at that time, this kind of love was only reserved for someone who was a blood relative. They were your first priority. Think in the context of Israel. Property was held by right of succession. Right? When the land is divided among the families in Joshua, after they take over Canaan, it's given to families and there was a law prohibiting selling land to anyone else permanently. It was to return to the original possessor of that land in the year of Jubilee. You could loan it out, but it was going to come back to your family. So your family and your possessions and your, your stability, your wealth and your, your longevity in the land, all of that was tied together. So this familial love is inseparable from all that in the mind of the first century. And this was outstanding, that that this type of love was being extended to people who were not blood relatives is what made Christians look crazy. Here's how one commentator put it. He translates it, Keep on loving each other as brothers. The expansion of the term to include men and women beyond the immediate family was considered ludicrous. That's the idea. It didn't make any sense. To the first century. And familial ties in the 21st century are a little bit different. Um, But we're not that different in being shocked at this level of love being summoned of us. Blood is somewhat more fluid. You know, you can move away from your family, your destiny, your your health and wealth isn't determined by your family, your identity isn't determined by your family. You can change your name. Uh, But we've replaced this determination of blood and the determination of faith with the freedom of choosing friends. 
That it's, it's no longer what situation you were born into, but the situation that I create for myself. I'll choose who I let close, and I'll be determined by that sphere of friends. And if you stop affirming me, if you start, start being a hindrance to my success in life, you're out of my life. That's how we do it, where the epicenter is not family and family identity, but just self. But it's not that much different. And so what the author is saying is that this brotherly love, this love, this unconditional, self-sacrificing, identifying with the other type of love that only existed really among families in the first century is that type of love that we're to show to one another. And the onlooking world saw and knew that this was something spectacular. I want you to turn here. It's Acts chapter 2. You know this passage. I don't think we can read it too much. What's crazy about this is how immediate it was. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. If you have a, the ESV, it, it gives the title over this passage. It says, the fellowship of believers. It really should say, the brotherly love of the believers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. One of the reasons I'm a pastor is because I want to experience this. And I think we've made strides. But I don't know if I'm being honest with myself if I can say I've been a part of a faith community like that. And it was immediate. I mean, there's no break after Peter finishes his sermon and people are converted and it just happens. And at some degree, I wonder like, well, am I out of bounds from what real Christianity is if I've never had that? There's a longing in all of us who are really converted to want that. And we're trying. But this is brotherly love. That they had all things in common. And that's what really stood out to the first century non-believers who looked on the life that Christians... This is what made them a peculiar people. That they give away their stuff for people who aren't blood relatives. Why would you do that? That's the point. And so much of what I'm saying is informed by the fact that it is possible to have this. This happens before glorification, right? These are baby Christians, and this is the type of life they have. That is brotherly love. That's what we've been given. This is our inheritance. It realigns our priorities. Not that biological families are unimportant. Not that your friends that you choose are unimportant. But the family of God is eternal. And we should live like it. So, individualism in the church through cliques or other means is unacceptable. What makes family different is the very thing that makes church membership different. 
You, can, you can't pick who's born into your family, right? I mean, we, we didn't have a say in the type of child Nova was going to be when she was born. She was born, and through God's providence and His sovereignty, this is the person who's been added to our family. So it is our responsibility to love her and give her everything she needs to thrive. But we didn't pick her. And when God chooses to bring a new person into the family through conversion, or if we welcome in someone, if we as a group welcome in a new member by affirming their confession, saying, yes, this one indeed is a child of God, then you can't close your heart to them. If you're affirming that you are brothers and sisters of them, it's a package deal. It's sort of like those, uh, those advertisements that come out. You can get a great rate on your internet <laughs> if you buy all this other stuff, right? I hate bundling, but in a sense, that is what happens with the church. You can't pick and choose. It's a package deal. And why is it this way? Why is it that we can't or shouldn't, definitely can, we shouldn't pick and choose people within the family of God to whom we will associate and love? Because that is out of sync with the love of Christ. We'll talk about this a little bit. But I want to give you two encouragements as we've discussed this type of love. I want to give you an encouragement in light of our limitations. I want to be clear that this doesn't mean that you have to like or to spend time with everyone equally. Jesus himself chose 12 disciples. And even among those 12, it's clear that he spent more time in intentional interaction with Peter, James, and John. Okay? But there is a sense in which God allows us to narrow our focus, and that's part of what church membership is. Jonathan Lehman puts it this way, Which Christians on planet Earth am I supposed to keep all the one another commands with? And that is what church membership clarifies. It's these Christians. Not just the ones who are like you among your church family, the ones you really like to spend time with. You're not allowed to close your heart to another believer. That's the point. If there's someone in front of you who has a need, even if you don't like them or particularly like spending time with them, you can't close your heart to them. And I want to give us all encouragements to change. This doesn't create permissibility for you to double down on your faults, expecting or insisting that everyone love you because God commands you to love me. Okay? Don't use the biblical exhortation to let brotherly love continue, not uh, remove from you the obligations to become more mature. Okay? Don't do that. We are to love everyone, but part of the way we love you, part of the way we love each other, is to show you how you need to grow. Right? And if you don't want to change, if you don't want to be humble, if you don't want to listen, if you don't want to be kind, it's not going to go well. This is why Matthew 18 exists. 
And someone who causes disunity actually creates more severity. The love that we're supposed to have between brothers and sisters is so important that someone who's called uh, causing disunity should be expelled with a greater severity than even someone with what we would consider bigger sins. Warn him once, then twice, then have nothing to do with him. That's what it says about disunity. This love is so important. So don't insist that, well, I'm just the way I am. I'm not going to change. You have to love me. That causes disunity and that won't go well. But here's the point, I think. If you pick and choose and you don't let the boundaries of church membership and the people that you're committed to determine the boundaries of who you're going to show love to, then you're really not showing brotherly love. James talks about this quite a bit. If you, if you honor the rich man when he comes into your midst, have you, not, have you not become evil with evil thoughts? What if Jesus were to pick his friends based on who was really like him? What if Jesus were to uh, only associate with those who were really like-minded with him. Those who wouldn't drag down his energy. Those who wouldn't be taxing on his emotions. He would have never left heaven, and we would never be his friends. The gospel in this context of brotherly love is nothing less than Jesus, without any loveliness in us, deciding to love us as his brothers. That's why he sacrificed, and that is the life that we've been summoned to, to imitate him. It's not like you can separate them at all. Love of Jesus and affirming that his sacrifice and his life is good, believing in the gospel itself is a summons to brotherly love because we're following his example. It is an example to be imitated because it's been done for us. It's not like a story out there. Oh, yeah, it's great. It's, it's wonderful. This beautiful story of a Messiah coming and dying and redeeming his people. He associated with his enemies and made us his friends. And obviously that comes with change. But neither you nor I, this side of glory, will be worthy of the friendship of Jesus. That's the gospel we're not worthy, we're not lovable, we're his enemies, and he befriends us. He loves us. He, and, and to consider what type of implications are built in for our inheritance and our eternal state that Jesus has set on you brotherly love. Not just affection in the heart, some, some feeling or some uh, light momentary uh, you know, infatuation, but brotherly love. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, the author of Hebrews himself says. So that's what brotherly love is, and that's the structure of the verse. verse. It starts with brotherly love. So if I were to translate it directly, it would be something like this. Brotherly love, let it continue. That's that's the flavor of the text. And so let's, let's look at this statement, let it continue. We don't have a third person imperative in English. 
Okay? And I know for some of you that just went like this. We don't have a third-person imperative in English, but that's what this is. We see it in other places in the Bible, like in James chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And similar to what God says in Genesis 1-3, let there be light. Who is he talking to? Is he telling someone else to grant permission to light to exist? That would be really, really odd. He's speaking directly to light that does not yet exist and commanding it to exist. In the same way with James, is he saying you're not letting the person who is suffering pray, so you got to make sure to let them pray? No, he's saying as a command, prayer needs to happen. It's as if he's speaking directly to prayer, which doesn't make sense, but that's what he's saying. Let him pray. Let prayer happen. Let praise happen. It's summoning it into existence in a sense. It's not directly that way, but that is how we should think of it. There's, here's another way to translate it. Brotherly love must continue. It's very urgent, the flavor that this gives it. Here's a way, another way to think of it. May it be. May brotherly love continue to be. Or let there be continual brotherly love, is what, is what he's saying. And... I think we need to consider a few things in connection to it with this command to continue. The ver- that's the verb. It's continue. The, the idea is not that brotherly love is lacking. He's not saying it doesn't exist right now, so uh, let it continue. It's saying he, he, is, he is assuming that it is the case because they are Christians he says earlier, in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He's assuming or asserting that there's already brotherly love. And then he's commanding it to continue to exist. So the command is that something that's already there would continue. Sort of like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.1. This is one of the ones that I wish we had more time to discuss. Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more. And he says in chapter 5 verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. It's it's already happening you're already doing well but make sure it continues. Why? Would Paul feel the need to say that? If brotherly love is already happening in the church that the author of Hebrews is writing into, why introduce the whole new section as let brotherly love continue? Because you and I have an inclination to sin still on this side of regeneration. We have the flesh and dwelling sin. And there is a tendency, just as the author of Hebrews has said, there's a tendency to drift And drifting from Christ is part and parcel with drifting away from love. Let us stir one another up. Don't let the fire die because the fire will die if you let it. So let it continue. And let me just say here as a point of clarification that this love is not a feeling. There's a song joke there. It's more than a feeling. 
It should go without saying. And if you've been a Christian for any significant amount of time, you know that real Christian love, especially between brothers and sisters in Christ, is not mainly or even significantly a feeling. Feelings come and go to a large degree. And to a large degree, you can't even control them. You wake up in the morning, and for some reason, I feel bad. And I don't feel like loving anyone. So that must mean I don't love anyone. No. The command is to love. It is, it is verb. It is doing something. So what he's saying here is that we are to double down and prioritize doing the things that are loving in light of the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's a riff, really, I think, back on chapter 10, verse 25. Stir one another up to love and to good works. you got to do the things that help love be the case. It's It's not making you feel a certain way. And there's an encouragement in that, and that's a whole other sermon, that that sometimes I think we can prioritize the inner life and the feelings too much, and we think that if, if we lack certain feelings, then God's not at work. But God works in us to will and to do. And feelings are fleeting. Okay? But that we'll discuss another time. Love in Christ is a holistic, deep-seated commitment to the highest good of another person. Right? That's a full, robust definition of what love is. A deep-seated commitment to the good, the highest good of another person, regardless of how you feel. Even if you don't enjoy their company, you can be committed to their highest good. And this word continue, it's the same word that John uses that we translate abide. Jesus uses it all the time. If you abide in me and in my word, the idea is is a continual living in it. Let, Let brotherly love abide. Let it remain. Let it stay. May it stay. It must abide. We must abide in it. It must remain. And honestly, I don't want our church to be known for anything else than brotherly love. There's a lot of things that a church can be known for, both bad and good, that aren't this. Oh, they're the, they're the church that has long sermons. <laughs> they're the church uh, who does great outreach. They're the church that does great mission trips in the summer. They're the church who wore masks or didn't wear masks. We don't know. Like what, what, They're the church with good counseling. Like All these things might be good. They're the, they're the church with, with great theology, what, whatever it is. This is like Ephesus. But you can have all those things and abandon your first love. I want to be known as the church that loves Jesus and loves one another. And that may sound overly simplistic, and yes, you have to have theology, but the proof in the pudding of correct theology is love. It is the highest virtue. So, let brotherly love continue. I want to conclude by talking about uh, the man and the mirror in James. As I said at the beginning, this is a simple command. It's very straightforward. There are two kinds of confidence in the Word of God. One that is confident in your understanding, your mastery of it, having all the little difficulties answered. 
You have your favorite authors, theologians, professors, pastors, and systems to explain everything. That's a confidence in your brain and ability to comprehend and apply and not confidence in the word itself. The real kind of confidence we should have comes with a massive amount of humility before the text that you don't understand everything. You see how much it summons of us and yet you know that we fall short. I wonder which confidence you have in the Bible. When you read something like, let brotherly love continue confident, you understand that? If we're not doing it, can we really say we're understanding it? While it's so clear and everywhere in the New Testament, does it feel like the church, the church broadly, not necessarily us here, but also us here, does it feel like the church in general excels at brotherly love? Is that a mark that the world would say, well, I disagree with their theology, they're wacky, but they love one another. I don't think they'd say that. And there are exceptions, and the Lord is at work, and this doesn't mean that it's all a fraud, but we've just got to be better. I hope that makes sense to you. There's a demonic kind of confidence in the Word that helps you puts, put commands like this, simple things, into, into a little box. you got it figured out. You know what it means. But you don't obey. Doing it is another matter. The confidence and clarity we need in simple texts like this is the confidence that says, God is right, and I am wrong. God's right, and I'm wrong, and I'm very wrong. Or the command is right, the imperative is good, and I am often very disobedient, and a lot needs to change. So it's very simple. Let brotherly love continue. But are you as an individual, are we as a church doing that? We must. It must abide. Are you so focused on your own spiritual growth that you exclude your brothers and sisters? Are you letting brotherly love continue? Or have you become kind of a Sunday-only consumer Christian? Are you letting brotherly love continue? Or are your relationships merely quid pro quo? You scratch your, my back, I'll scratch yours. Are you letting brotherly love continue? Or is your behavior here and elsewhere at odds with the increase of brotherly love? Are you letting brotherly love continue? Or is your biological family or the friends that you choose truly more important to you than the family of God? Maybe we have the wrong kind of confidence in the word of God with a command like this. Maybe, and I don't really think it's a maybe, we need to re-examine the simple commands and not be like the man who looks in the mirror, sees turns and forgets, but rather let us be a hearer who sees, changes, and does. May it be so for the glory of our Lord Jesus in all the earth. I want to give you seven rules for brotherly love. It would be, I think, a, a, 
a disservice to you to not give you some practical way of living this out. These will go quickly. These aren't seven additional points to squeeze this in. I've stolen three of these and modified one of them, but then the rest are mine. Number one, someone alone in our meetings is an emergency. Someone alone in our meetings is an emergency. We need to believe that and think that. Number two, friends can wait. Friends can wait. Number three, help others build new relationships. Paul talks about this when he, he, he says that we're to welcome people, that we would be involved in facilitating the building of new relationships. Number four, a good Sunday is finding and sharing another one's burden. That, that if you were to ask, you know, what makes for a good Sunday? What's a success? We just read this in Galatians 6. Bear one another's burdens and so, or by so doing, you will fulfill all the law of Christ. That's what he's saying, that that by living this way with one another, finding burdens of other people to bear and carry, you're going to fulfill all the law. It's just a derivative of saying, love your neighbor as yourself. A good Sunday is finding and sharing another's burden. Number five, be better at listening than talking. And that sounds funny coming from me because I talk a lot and I have to talk a lot. But it's not to say don't speak or don't share what God is saying to you, but to be more skilled at listening and asking questions than saying. That's definitely something that we all need to hear. And I think that's just a derivative of Paul's command to to outdo one another in showing honor. Number six, find an opportunity to remind someone of our hope. When I was in college, we had a grading rubric for our seminar classes. We showed up, and we received one, and there were a list of things that we were supposed to do in the seminar to, to get a good grade, and we turned them back. It was a self-grading thing for class participation, and it was, how many questions did you ask? Did you quote the text? And uh, did you um, interact with someone else's question? Or something like that. You can tell how long it's been forgotten how I was graded. But this is one of the things that I think we could come in with with a plan, an agenda for Sunday morning. There's not something vague like, like just be in the presence of God or something like that. Is find an opportunity to remind someone of our hope. Fit it in somewhere into conversation. That practice will enable you to be a better evangelist. That as you work to remind people of our hope who are professing believers, you can be better at communicating the gospel. Then number seven, as the seventh rule of brotherly love, joy is your job. It sounds odd, but it sounds great on the other hand because it works. Joy is your job. There is a duty of delight. You're commanded to be happy. (laughs) Sometimes it's not easy. But you're commanded to be happy and to be joyful in the presence of God. Joy is your job. So just briefly, I'll revisit them and we'll be done. Someone alone is an emergency. Friends can wait. Cause new relationships. And I'm I'm summarizing them. Find a burden to bear. It is more blessed to hear than to speak. Remind others of our hope. And rejoice. Let's pray. Father, please give us the skill and the wisdom and the desire to let brotherly love continue. 
Might that be what we're known for as a community who loves you and loves one another. In Jesus' name, amen.